0: A production of Interfaith Voices. I am your guest host this week, Kimberly Winston. Science and religion have not always been the most natural partners. In the past, they have clashed frequently and furiously, most notably over the age of the Earth, the sun's location in the solar system, and in the teaching of evolution. Today, they face off over climate change, vaccine mandates, and gender identity. But a new exhibit at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History hopes to reframe the relationship between science and religion from one of conflict to one of cooperation and mutual insight. This development is also captured in a newly revised book about science and religion that we'll hear about later in the episode. But first, let's walk through the new Smithsonian exhibit— called Discovery and Revelation, Religion, Science, and Making Sense of Things, which opened in March of this year. Our tour guide is Dr. Peter Manso, the Lilly Endowment Curator of American Religious History at the National Museum of American History. I asked Dr. Manso to explain the genesis of the exhibit and what it says about Americans, religion, and science.
1: Discovery and Revelation is our second focus exhibit at the National Museum of American History. Uh, the first was Religion in Early America, which ran from 2017 to 2018. For the follow-up, we wanted to have a subject that would appeal to visitors who might not think that they're interested in religion. Now, we wanted to find a way to show that the subject of American religious history crosses borders of interests and uh, is embedded throughout culture in really fascinating ways, including its intersection with science. We engage in conversation with both uh, experts in the field and with visitors, and we found that museum visitors, by and large, assumed a certain amount of conflict in this subject of the intersection of religion and science. In talking with experts about the subject, however, we found that there is much more an understanding of the complexity of this interaction, that it is not merely a matter of conflict, but rather it's a matter of mutual influence across time between religious and scientific ideas. So we want to take this opportunity with the exhibit to translate some of that scholarly discourse around religion and science, which assumes complexity And we wanted to communicate that to visitors to the museum, who are 5 million people every year. We wanted to communicate the really fascinating, ongoing interaction of religion and science, informed by the scholarly discourse around it, but not limited by it.
0: When a visitor walks into the exhibit, what do they see?
1: They'll note immediately that The exhibit covers three centuries of American history, the 18th century, 19th century, the 20th century, and up until today. But they'll also see that it's an exhibit organized around big thematic questions, questions that we all have probably asked throughout our lives and that Americans have asked throughout our history. Uh, Those questions are, what is our place in the universe? What does it mean to be human? And perhaps most importantly, what do we owe each other? What is the ethical dimension of the intersection of religion and science? We wanted to do this because this subject of religion and science, we we find that many people assume it's all about abstractions, uh, that it's only uh, about a conflict of ideas. But really, it's about how we move through the world, how we interact with the things we have learned through our educations, and also with our ideas about the answers to the big questions of the universe and of being alive. So we wanted to show that this isn't something that you need to have a PhD to engage with, but rather the questions raised by the intersection of religion and science are simply about what it means to be human.
0: The exhibit is built around three anchoring images stationed at three different parts of the gallery. Tell me what these images mean and why they were selected.
1: The three anchoring images, which also include some objects, are are connected directly to those questions that I mentioned. So when you enter the gallery at one end, you encounter that question, what is our place in the universe? And you see this beautiful portrait of the planet Earth taken by the Apollo 8 astronauts that for the first time showed Earth from space to a very wide audience. And this was on a mission when the Apollo 8 astronauts happened to be orbiting the moon for the very first time. It fell on Christmas Eve, 1968, and so they decided to mark the occasion by reading aloud from the Book of Genesis to what was then the largest broadcast audience ever assembled. As you enter the gallery, you encounter that original footage of from 1968, the Apollo astronauts reading aloud from the first verses of the Book of Genesis. crew of Apollo
2: 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form, and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and divided the light from the darkness.
1: What we wanted to do with that moment is show that Even at a point when humanity is beginning to reach the stars, we often fall back on these ancient words to give them some meaning and context, to try to describe something that is beyond our our comprehension. At the other end of the gallery, you encounter the image of a Tibetan Buddhist teacher seated in a meditation stance, and his head is covered with uh, electrodes used in a study to uh, scan the brains of buddhist monks in meditation to discover what the influence with the impact of religious practice has been on the structures of the brain can you see what a brain in meditation looks like we, what we wanted to do is ground the exhibit in human experience the global human experience in, in the individual human experience <laughs> The third of our anchoring images is, as you mentioned, the portrait of Henrietta Lacks, uh, the woman who very famously uh, died of ovarian cancer in the 1950s. And then without her consent, uh, researchers took her cells and were able to determine that they could be endlessly uh, replicated. They were immortal, as they said. And this led to all manner of uh, scientific and, and medical breakthroughs. Usually her story is told as one simply as part of the history of science. But it's worth noting that her own family, many members of whom are devout Christians, have interpreted the immortality of her of herself in explicitly religious terms, even going so far as to consider her a kind of angel who, despite her her physical passing, has remained on Earth to help humanity. And this, for us, raised that question of the ethical dimension of the intersection of religion and science. The question of consent and what does it mean to take someone's physical remains uh, without their permission and then to use it, uh, albeit for the greater good, uh, but first of all, denying agency to the first person involved in that process. So the way we thought about this uh, movement through the themes in the gallery, going from the global view of the earth to the individual view of the monk in meditation to the interpersonal, the relational view of what does it mean to be in community with each other, we thought that all of these are ways that we encounter the intersection of religion and science. This isn't about things only that happen in houses of worship versus things that happen in laboratories, but rather it's about our daily lives. It's about how we interact with each other and how we make sense of the world.
0: Mm. And it's worth pointing out also that that portrait of Henrietta Lack's is done, to my eye, sort of in the style of iconography.
1: Oh, yeah, certainly. You really nailed it, saying it's it's like an icon. She's wearing a hat, it seems, a large sun hat. Mm -hmm. Or is it a halo? It has that halo effect. She is holding over her ovaries, the site of her cancer, she is holding her Bible, uh, because she, too, was a devout Christian. And her Bible is one of the few objects that the family continues to have Making that personal connection to her.
0: And in between the images are objects that shed light on the big questions and the issues uh, about science and religion. There's, uh, you have the Jefferson Bible. It's a New Testament that Jefferson took a scissors to and cut out all the miracles and the supernatural events. Uh, There's a Benjamin Franklin lightning rod, which um, helped dispel the idea of thunder and lightning as expressions of God's anger. And you have a handwritten letter by Galileo from his imprisonment for saying the earth revolves around the sun. How did you choose what objects to include in the exhibit?
1: We wanted to show the way that the questions raised by the intersection of religion and science resonate across time. And so, one of the earliest stories we tell is the story of a smallpox epidemic Mm -hmm. in Puritan Boston in 1721. Many community leaders believed that all you could do in the face of an epidemic was to pray. Uh, if God had sent you this affliction, all you could do was discover what you had done wrong to warrant it and then to, to make amends in some way. Uh, and yet there was at the time a fairly new medical practice known as, at the time as variolation. It becomes known as inoculation later um, and, and vaccination still later on. It was becoming known through European medical journals, but also through the experiences of the enslaved community of New England. Uh, many of the African-born men and women who were brought to North America had been inoculated against smallpox in their youth. And so when this smallpox epidemic was raging through Boston, a Puritan minister by the name of Cotton Mather, the most prominent minister of his day in Boston, learned from an enslaved man in his own home, a man called Onesimus, of this practice to treat smallpox. Mather uh, did his research, considered himself as much uh, as a man in, man of science, as a man of faith, and he began to advocate for the use of inoculation to treat smallpox in Boston. His fellow ministers thought that Mather was uh, going against the will of God mm. by proposing that that humanity could could intervene and solve something that usually prayer would be used to address. Uh, and so ultimately, inoculation came to be seen as a gift from God rather than a challenge to God's will. We realized that this first story we tell in the exhibit speaks directly to our experience now and to the involvement of religious voices for and against vaccination and the complications that arise when religious authorities and scientific authorities aren't necessarily always in agreement.
3: Mm.
0: What is there, if anything, that is distinctly American about the way religion and science rub up against each other in this country? Does it tell you anything about us as a people?
1: There does seem to be something specifically American about uh the way religion and science have interacted in the way that we talk about the the religion and science discourse. This has been a place uh, for the past five centuries, uh, America broadly speaking, uh, that has been full of all types of cultures and ideas and ways of knowing constantly bumping into each other and reshaping each other through this process of mutual influence thinking about the American context specifically, it allows us a much broader understanding of what religion and science look like in their interaction uh, incorporating understandings of indigenous knowledge and the way in which that science, that way of knowing and, and being in the world uh, contributed to Europeans ability to uh, survive in this place at all. So the challenge of that type of story in a museum setting is finding objects that can be used to tell it, and that has also been the great joy of this exhibit mm. to, to help visitors understand the really concrete nature of the interaction. That it's not simply about ideas, but it is about the the things that we uh, interact with in our in our lives.
0: Mm. What's your personal favorite thing in the exhibit?
1: I think I am most delighted by uh, this. Objects that is popularly known as the footprints of Noah's raven. And this is a set of bird-like dinosaur tracks discovered early in the 19th century in New England. And the popular understanding of this set of fossilized tracks at the time was that they were so ancient that they must be the footprints of Noah's raven, Uh, following the biblical story of After the Flood, when noah is is floating on the ark with all the animals mm-hmm. eventually he sends birds out to see if the waters have receded mm-hmm. if if there's land and so the footprints of noah's raven are are so called because of the understanding that noah's raven's landed in the mud and left these tracks which were then discovered in new england early in in the 19th century so i i just find that a delightful popular understanding that has been uh, captured in literally in this, in this slab of stone. Hmm. But the interesting thing about it is that it's connected to the work of uh, Edward and Ora Hitchcock. Edward Hitchcock was a theologian and geologist who uh, taught at Amherst college in Massachusetts. His wife, Ora was an illustrator and painter who would make beautiful renderings of fossilized creatures and land formations for his, for his geological lectures. And they were among those who, at this time in American history, were actively trying to shape religious understanding according to this uh, exploding understanding in the in the sciences. And so, at a time when geologists were realizing, oh, the Earth is not thousands of years old, as the biblical creationists might have said, but millions of years old, they would try to incorporate that idea into their understanding of Scripture. So these are among the first who would read from the book of Genesis and see seven days of creation and think, oh, well, each day, each biblical day mentioned here must truly mean tens of millions of years. Mm. And and so it's a fascinating moment of of religious tradition actively seeking to adapt itself to new scientific understanding. And that's all captured to me in that one sort of whimsical object Mm. of the footprints of Noah's Raven.
0: We've been talking with Dr. Peter Manso, curator of American Religious History at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. The exhibit, called Discovery and Revelation, Religion, Science, and Making Sense of Things, is on display through March 2023. When we come back, we'll explore some of the changes in the dance between science and religion with some academic consultants to the exhibit. Stay with
2: us.
4: Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between.
0: Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I am Kimberly Winston, sitting in this week for Umbreen Khan. We've been taking a sort of audio tour of a new Smithsonian exhibit that hopes to reframe the way Americans think about science and religion. One of the consultants to the Smithsonian on the exhibit is Dr. Myrna Sheldon an historian of science and religion, and an assistant professor at Ohio University. Like our earlier guest, Dr. Peter Manso, Dr. Sheldon also believes the relationship between science and religion is far more complicated than most Americans realize. I asked Dr. Sheldon what she pegged as the most important object the exhibit could include to illustrate the real dance between science and religion.
3: So I think the thing that I think is really urgent about the relationship between science and religion is really well captured in one of their centering images. So I believe that you've seen the image of Henrietta Lacks that stands on one side of the of the exhibit. Yes. And the story of Henrietta Lacks, where her tissues were taken without her consent and used to develop, I mean, almost any kind of therapeutic or um, kind of innovative research you can imagine in the last 50 years, in some way, many of those things, cancer treatments, new freezing technologies, you know, just a variety of things can be traced back to the HeLa cells line.
0: Let's remind our listeners of the story of Henrietta Lacks. She was a Black woman who, while being treated for cervical cancer in the 1950s, had some of her cells harvested by doctors at Johns Hopkins University without her consent. For 70 years, doctors have used Mrs. Lacks' cells to research diseases, create vaccines, conduct experiments. The Smithsonian exhibit has included a large painting of Mrs. Lacks by the artist Kadir Nelson titled Henrietta Lacks, the Mother of Modern Medicine.
3: They were the first cells that researchers were successful in keeping immortal so that they would continue to reproduce and they could use for a variety of experimental purposes. So they came to be known as HeLa um, from the letters of Henrietta's first and last name. But researchers who used the HeLa cell lines, the vast majority of them didn't have any um, knowledge of their source or, or know anything about Henrietta as a person. During her lifetime, she never knew about the use of the cells to develop them into this uh, research tool.
0: Why did you single out that image?
3: For me, what Henrietta Lacks shows us is that while all that scholarship has its value, there's so much that's missed if those are the kinds of questions that we concentrate on. And the kinds of things that we miss is the ways in which science as a system, science as a set of institutions, and or religion as a set of um, systems and institutions has these material impacts on people's lives. Um, And so when we're asking the question, how do science and religion emerge as categories? What kind of role do they have in our contemporary life? To me, it's much more these stories about either exploitation and violence or potentially liberation, especially for marginalized communities or minoritized races. So in kind of typical science and religion scholarship, you wouldn't be spending time thinking about the life of a black woman in the mid-century in the United States. It's just not the kind of thing that you're interested in, typically in that scholarship. Um, so, my collaborators and I really wanted to reorient the ways that we study science and religion, so that these are the, so that these would be the kinds of stories that would occur to us as at the center of this field and this scholarship.
0: Mm. One of the things that the exhibit states that it wants to do is to dispel the myth that science and religion are enemies. One of the other guests on the show, Adam Shapiro, has revised a book about science and religion in which he and his co-authors state that the thinking in the last two or three decades among academics is that there's much more interplay between them than we popularly understand— Can you tell me why that
3: is? So I think when we have this image of science, religion at war with one another, we're often thinking about topics like creationism and evolution. And we'll then tend to think about science, religion as these really abstract kind of philosophical systems, like what kinds of questions they ask about the nature of the universe or whether or not God exists. Um, And so we'll think of them as like different answers to the same question. For myself, my collaborators, and I think, for instance, Adam Shapiro, that's just not the kind of way that we think about what science and religion are. So that they might have a lot of different sorts of interactions, especially depending on the way that they're situated in other kinds of power systems. So for instance, if you're thinking about a colonial government, so you you know you might think about the colonial relationship between the United States and Puerto Rico, you might actually see harmony between religion and science in the ways that the United States is trying to govern or settle or control a place like Puerto Rico. So for instance, you might see, and scholars have looked at this, the ways in which Christian uh, pastors and priests and missionaries alongside scientists who are working maybe in genetics or eugenics actually work together in colonial governance and oversight. So there you wouldn't really think about science and religion being opposed to each other. They're actually, I mean, friends in some sense in kind of a terrible sense, but they're friends in some sense, both working in tandem as part of a colonial relationship. And when you think about it in that way, all of a sudden you realize there's lots and lots of ways that they can interact. Um, And actually sometimes when they get along, they're doing more violence than when they're opposing one another, um, Hmm. sometimes ironically.
0: Can you give me an example of when they work together and there's violence?
3: Well, so I think that we can really think about it in terms of political and power structures. So I was beginning with the example of eugenics because it was an ideology that was adopted by many uh, what, we call, what we might call social elites in the early 20th century in the United States. So people who were well-educated, maybe had political power, people who um, saw themselves as often as white, maybe in particular as Anglo-Saxon, often Protestant, um, who thought of eugenics, this kind of scientific insight into human genetics and human breeding as a way to improve American society. And eugenics organizations like the American Eugenics Society actually sought relationships with uh, pastors and preachers in the country where they actually held sermon contests encouraging uh, ministers to preach the value of eugenics from the pulpit to talk about the role that eugenics could have in improving American society. So here you have an example of a a community that is looking to science to improve and better society. And they explicitly reach out to religious communities in order to do that. And the religious communities are happy to go along with this. Um, And now from a historical point of view, we can see that the vision (laughs) that the eugenicists and the Protestant pastors had of American society was one that did not value minoritized racial groups, did not value Black lives, for instance, did not value people of sexual diversity or of a diversity of abilities. So there I would say, you know, science and religion were getting along just fine, um, but they were getting along in order to promote and develop a vision of the United States that many people who I value and and for myself personally would not fit into. Um, So that I would see science and religion getting along, but doing violence while they're doing it.
0: So can you give me an example of science and religion working together for good?
3: Probably the most explicit example I can see of these attempts have actually come from particularly, uh, this this is complicated, of course, but I think mm. at least explicit efforts um, made, especially in the late Cold War era, between uh, public intellectual scientists and celebrity scientists and the Vatican to, for instance, speak out against nuclear armament in the early 1980s. Probably the other place I would think about it are maybe in places that we wouldn't identify as. Kind of traditional or explicit, like Western forms of religion. So, here I'm thinking about more kind of forms of spirituality that we might identify with African diasporic movements, or we might identify with some of the kind of new um, witchcraft movements that try to connect to uh, indigenous, whether European indigenous or American indigenous, um, shamanic practices. And there, I think I see some modes of, of harmony that are trying to promote new types of human flourishing and and liberation, especially for marginalized communities. So that's the other place I think I would kind of go to in thinking about science, religion, working together. If we
0: persist in seeing science and religion as completely separate and always opposed to each other, what do we risk missing out on or getting wrong about science and religion?
3: So I think the main thing that we miss is that we don't see the ways in which science and religion are involved in some of our most urgent political matters. And I'll give you some examples. And when we don't see that, what we fail in seeing is that the way that we study them should be able to speak to these urgent political matters. So for instance, When somebody asks me, what is a topic that you think is at the heart of science and religion? My mind immediately goes to abortion. Mm -hmm. In my mind, abortion is the paradigmatic, political, existential, epistemological, ontological question at the heart of science and religion. But that's not a topic most people study when they think about science and religion. Again, they go to creationism, they go to evolution, you know, maybe they go to like the age of the earth. And not that there's anything wrong with those topics. I mean, I write about them myself. But for me, you know, this question of who should have more authority to make decisions in our society having to do with when life ends or begins, what it means to be human, um, what it means to um, define who can be a parent, who can reproduce. I mean, to me, that is science and religion. Um, So, for instance, when you look at the Supreme Court case, Hobby Lobby v. Burwell, the Green family said, you're requiring us to Support or pay for our employees to have access through the healthcare we give them to certain reproductive technologies, and we believe these technologies to be abortifacients. That is, things that call abortions. But the FDA, which is the government's, you know, scientific institution that defines um, what these technologies are, does not classify those things as abortifacients. It classifies them as contraceptives. So here we have an instance where. Um, a private organization for religious reasons saw a technology classified it as an abortifacient because of their religious convictions, the FDA in its kind of scientific authority opposed it and the court supported the Green family and they won that case. I mean, to me, that's science and religion, right? And in this sense, religion won and it has has had enormous consequences um, for people's lives and their families. We continue to see this in the adjudications over abortion. So when I think about, you know, if you were a person who wanted to study science or religion, I would probably make you study abortion first. But also I think if you're a person who cares about abortion politics in the U.S., I think that you should have the resources from people who study science and religion closely in order to engage with that issue in the best way possible. So I guess another way that I would put this is, I care a lot about the academic study of science and religion. It's it's what I spend my life doing. I wish the field would study in it a different way, but I actually care less about that than what I care about is people who are not particularly interested in the academic study of science and religion, but who are dealing with in their lives or in their community's lives, these really pressing political problems. And I believe that My scholarship and other people's scholarship should be useful to them. It should give them insight. It should give them support. It should give them vocabulary. And so that's why I want to change the field. It's not really for the scholars, although I care about that, it's actually for these political issues.
0: That was Dr. Myrna Shapiro, an historian of science and religion and an assistant professor at Ohio University. Dr. Shapiro was a consultant to the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History's new exhibit, Discovery and Revelation, Science, Religion, and Making Sense of Things. When we come back, we'll learn why the authors of a recent book about religion and science gave it a massive update. Stay with us. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I am your guest host this week, Kimberly Winston. We've been talking about a new exhibit at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History that paints science and religion not as enemies, but as co-stars, working sometimes in the spotlight and sometimes behind the scenes. This month, a book titled Science and Religion, a Very Short Introduction, is being published by Oxford University Press. It's a bit unusual in that it was first published in 2008, but the discourse between science and religion has changed so much since then that about half the book required updating. Joining me now is Dr. Adam Shapiro, an historian of science and religion, who co-authored the revision with Thomas Dixon of Queen Mary University in London. I asked Dr. Shapiro how the notion that science and religion as perpetual opponents took hold.
2: The idea of a science versus religion conflict in many ways really traces back to the 19th century. This is a time where historians are inventing a narrative about things like the scientific revolution, and they are creating a story about Galileo as this sort of martyr to progress. Part of the impetus for this in the United States was a backlash against Catholicism. This was a time of massive nativism in the United States. There was a lot of anti-Catholic sentiment in some pockets of the country. And so narratives that looked at the Catholic Church as standing in the way of human progress were very popular narratives. Even though other instances of religion and science clashing with one another weren't necessarily dominated by the Catholic Church, uh, this narrative of science and religion conflict became sort of self-sustaining. That really came to a head in the early 20th century with the controversies over the teaching of evolution in the United States. But even while that was going on, even while these narratives of conflict were dominating sort of social discourse, there were plenty of instances in which religious communities were embracing and pursuing science and where scientists often described what they were doing as elaborating and describing the Lord's creation. These two different forces of seeing science and religion in harmony with one another and seeing them in conflict with one another were in fact going on all of the time. And so for probably close to three decades now, historians have really looked at this and said, the real story isn't one of either conflict or harmony. It's more complex than that.
0: The science and religion at war narrative. Why has that been so popular? Why has that persisted if it isn't true?
2: I think there's a couple of reasons why. One of them has to do with questions of cultural control. If you can... Identify a clear cut enemy to what you see as sort of the cultural boundaries that you are trying to place in society. Then you can use those enemies to help define where those boundaries lie. So if we say, for example, that organized religion is deliberately attempting to impede scientific progress, then that creates a narrative that allows Scientist to see what they are doing as an act of liberatory experience, as an act of overcoming entrenched power. That was certainly a narrative that was popular in the 19th century at a time when religious groups and religious organizations had quite a great deal of power. This was especially true, for example, in 19th century England, where membership in the Church of England was A requisite for participation in quite a lot of functions in society. In the United States, religious toleration was a pretty rapidly settled issue from the, really from the beginning of the Bill of Rights and to some extent even before that. But again, the question was religion as a cultural force and cultural authority. A lot of times what we saw even later in American history was the use of political Christianity as sort of a tool that enforced cultural norms. And by framing science as something that opposed that political force, it was easier to sort of define and polarize what was politically at stake.
0: So what I think I'm hearing you say is that both scientists and religious people had reason for advancing the idea that science and religion were at war it benefited them both am i hearing that correctly
2: at times yes at other times it really benefited them to emphasize the idea of harmony even when they didn't agree on what that harmony was
0: hmm. okay now let me ask you to fast forward a little bit yeah um because when i came onto the religion beat way back in the dark ages i spent a lot of time writing about the battle over the teaching of evolution in public schools. That meant that I had to reach out to the Discovery Institute, right? And the Discovery Institute promoted the teaching of what they called intelligent design, right? Now, for at least the first 10, 15 years I was on this beat, intelligent design came up every year. Every year we had to write one or two stories about evolution, intelligent design. What has happened to that? I can't think of the last time I heard a peep from the Discovery Institute. So tell me, does this mean that the creationism evolution battle at the public school level is done or what's going on there?
2: I think the real answer is that it's taken on a different form. Um, I will say that. The Discovery Institute and other advocates of intelligent design are quite clear that they see what they're doing is to be very different from creation science. Strictly speaking, I think we would define creation science as a form of looking at nature that attempts to confirm a narrative that is given in the Bible. Intelligent design doesn't make explicit claims about reconciliation with the Bible. So to that extent, they are very different. Mm. One of the things that we really make an effort to show in the new book is that intelligent design is also very different from the design arguments that we often observed happening back in the days before Darwin, particularly those of the natural theological arguments like William Paley. Paley may be most famous for the idea of the watchmaker argument, the idea that if you look at a watch and you watch how it operates, even if you don't know what it's doing, you can infer that it is in fact created by some sort of intelligence that had a purpose behind that. Hmm. What we try to show is that both because of the context of its time and really the logic of the argument, intelligent design looks very different from the natural theology of 200 years ago. But to answer your question, the Discovery Institute is still putting out its own media. It's still operating. But I think you're right to say that it is not making the kind of public impact that it had in earlier eras. I think the main reason for that is that since about the 1960s, when the anti-evolution laws were in fact ruled unconstitutional, creation science became popular starting in the 60s because it presented the idea that it wasn't religion, it was a form of science, a form of science that happened to agree with religion, but was reaching those same conclusions scientifically. In the 1980s, a series of federal court rulings determined that creation science was, was still a form of religion uh, because its conclusions were, if you will, predetermined to coincide with a biblical account of creation. So this is arguments about things like how Noah's flood is responsible for the dispersity of fossils and the artifacts in the world that we see and claiming that the earth is in fact 6,000 or so years old. Intelligent design really initially becomes popular in the wake of creation science being ruled unconstitutional in the 1980s. In fact, the Dover trial in 2004, one of the things that came up with the Book of Pandas and People was that it was originally written as a creation science text and that the words intelligent design were sort of substituted in for creation science at the last minute in the revision process. Throughout this legal history... There's been this supposition that the way that you can tell whether something in the classroom is inappropriate is not by saying, is it or is it not religion, but saying, is it or is it not science? Mm. So in some ways, what the courts did was enshrine this idea that science and religion are diametrically opposed to each other because they basically Mm. said, is it religion? Well, if it's not science, then it must be.
0: One thing that really struck me in the book was that you argue that today seeming debates between science and religion are really less about either one and more about personal freedom, right? So tell me a little bit about that. When did that shift come around and how did we see that play out in the religious response to the pandemic's? requirement early on that houses of worship be uh, shuttered and in the subsequent vaccine mandate. Yeah. How did it go from what do I believe and more into what are my rights?
2: When we started writing this new edition of the book, the pandemic was not even on the horizon. We had no idea that that was going to be a topic. We had discussed a little bit about talking about the history of vaccination and the history of the provision of medical care as a topic that we needed to spend a bit more time on because we knew that there were already controversies over compulsory vaccination and about beliefs in vaccination. And we felt like it deserved some attention. But certainly we didn't expect anything like what we saw during the during the rise of the COVID pandemic. What we did see was on one hand, I think some very You know, very, very sort of loud examples of religious organizations, specific churches refusing to comply with mandates either to stop holding services in person, in some cases providing religious guidance to people against quarantine or against masking. And ultimately, once there were vaccines available against vaccination as well. But at the same time. We saw a ton of responses that showed that many religious people and many religious organizations make use of science in their everyday lives in ways that need to be acknowledged. I think for me, one of the most stunning things was the decision by many Jews who don't typically use electronics during holy days uh, to do things like hold Passover seders on Zoom or on other electronic platforms, that was a stunning decision. That was in some ways unprecedented. And it speaks, I think, more broadly to the way that technology changes the availability of religious practice and Mm. and the kinds of religious practice. These aren't entirely without precedent. I think one thing we mention in the book is that a hundred years ago, when germ theory was still pretty new, there were some Christian churches that, Debated over whether or not, during the 1918 flu pandemic, um, whether it still made sense to take communion out of the same cup, or whether to take the consecrated communion wine and to distribute it into separate cups. Mm-hmm. And there were churches that that split over that issue. Mm-hmm. So the idea that um, religious groups would interpret science differently or balance the evidence of science against the concerns of their ritual and practice is not itself new. But we also saw that even groups that were being portrayed as rejecting science by doing things like wanting to hold services in person, sometimes against government restrictions, were were still showing that they were doing things that were making use of science, but interpreting it differently. Um, we talked specifically about uh, some churches in Chicago that, wanted to continue holding services despite the governor's mandate. In the letter that they wrote, they talked about using hand sanitizers and practicing social distancing and all of the remediative measures that they would take in order to be able to worship in person.
0: Another thing that you talk about in the book is the 30-meter telescope, the TMT, Mm -hmm. in Hawaii. Tell me how you see science and religion either colliding there or working together there. Tell me what you see there and why it's different. Why is it in the book?
2: Yeah. So this was something that has also been going on while we were writing it, although it began even before. The 30-meter telescope is a proposed telescope. 30 meters has to do with the focal length of the primary mirror. This would be one of the largest ground-based telescopes ever built. It's an exciting scientific project. The information it it could potentially reveal would be fascinating to understanding the origins of the universe and its early evolution. Mm. For better or worse, the site where astronomers wanted to locate this was on the top of Kea, on land that has always held a, a spiritually significant and ritually important place to indigenous Hawaiians. There has been a pretty strong protest against building this on land that has been held sacred, that has historical and spiritual significance to the people who are indigenous to these islands. Some astronomers, thinking back to their own history, have basically said, why would we allow the religious beliefs of these people to stand in the way of science. Letting religion stand in the way of science is precisely what the Catholic church did to Galileo 400 years earlier. Mm. And I think one of the things that we wanted to address in the book was the way in which these stories of science and religion continue to shape public policy and public attitudes today. Because when you look at it on the face of it, that comparison seems absurd. Mm. You're talking about a multinational collaboration of, you know, very well-empowered people who are trying to build the telescope. And you're looking at a historically very, very oppressed, colonized area of indigenous people who are fighting for land rights, for land that was, was once theirs without any question. To say that they are the ones who hold the power the way that the Catholic Church held power over the fate of Galileo seems like the most absurd of false equivalences. But that narrative of science being oppressed by religion, which sort of takes the Galileo story as one of its founding myths, is is still powerful today.
0: That was Dr. Adam Shapiro, co-author of Science and Religion, a very short introduction, appearing this month in a new, heavily revised edition. You can find out more about many of the things Dr. Shapiro discussed, like the 2004 Dover Evolution Trial and the 30-meter telescope and more, on our website, interfaithradio.org. If you missed any part of this week's show, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. While you are there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or the podcatcher of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. While you're there, you can help us by leaving a rating and a review. It helps others find our show. Special thanks to MC Yogi for our theme music, Additional music is by Blue Dot Sessions. A special thank you to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy and me, Kimberly Winston. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm your guest host, Kimberly Winston. We'll see you next week.